You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim you to, to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city so that they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word to us. We are thankful that these events not only happened, but that you thought in your wisdom to record them for us, for our benefit, for our life, for our deepening faith in you and in the promises of Christ. So now, Father, we pray that you would do a great work in and amongst and through your people today as we sit under your word and as we are shaped fashioned and formed by it. We pray that you would do this all for your great namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. I, I meant to say last week, but then I didn't, and then just, I think this is something that we should just regularly encourage one another with. We are so glad that there are so many kids in this room, aren't we? Um, I think many of you parents who are glad to have, to be able to have brought your kids here, uh, we are hoping to kind of slowly reopen Christchurch Kids again soon, but all that to say, we are glad to be the family that we are here, so perhaps uh, those of you without kids whose ears aren't quite as calloused as those of us who do have kids, we would just encourage you to be patient, to be encouraging, uh, to love those whom sit around you. Uh, well, if you are visiting with us tonight, we have been slowly working our way through the book of Acts, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but as we've called it a few times, the Acts of Jesus by His Spirit through his church, but that is too long of a title. So Acts will have to do. Uh, Luke, the writer of this book, has uh, focused on the work of Jesus uh, through the first many chapters of this book through Peter and then through several deacons or servants of the church. But now for the rest of the way, he's pretty much just going to turn the camera and focus on the works or the acts of Jesus through the apostle Paul. Paul and his young protégés of Silas and Timothy are now firmly fixed in Acts 16, what we just heard read, uh, in commonly known as their second missionary journey, Paul's secondary or second missionary journey. Your Bible might have a map of that right there at the back of your Bible. Uh, similarly, like we saw last week, similarly to Israel, who was wandering in the wilderness after they left Egypt, last week we saw these guys just wandering around Turkey wondering where in the world they should go. Unlike Israel, their wandering wasn't because of sin or idolatry, but like Israel, who crossed the Jordan River to bring the presence of God amongst his people into the land, now Paul and his boys have just crossed the Aegean Sea. They have crossed into a new land for the first time now into Europe, into Macedonia that we'll see today in chapter 16, and then in future chapters into Greece. In the first few chapters of Acts, Paul was, or Luke was seemingly highlighting the Jewish response to the gospel of Jesus, and in a lot of that response, it does not go well. Some respond positively to the gospel, many, many do not. And so some folks throughout history, unfortunately, have used stories like that to come to some sort of like an anti-Semitic conclusion, like the rejection of Jesus is a unique, uh, uniquely Jewish thing, uniquely Jewish response. And while there will certainly be Jewish characters popping up throughout the rest of Acts, the further away from Jerusalem Paul gets, the more the Gentile nations are now going to be the primary hearers of the gospel. And like many Jews, many Gentiles will hear and respond positively, but in showing that the rejection of Jesus as king is not necessarily a Jewish response, but is just an innate human response, we're going to see even today that the people and even structures of the nations of the world will instinctively reject and even violently oppose Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel of good news. So all of this will be on full display here in Philippi in Acts 16. And yet, despite coming to a world of opposition, the gospel is for every kind of person. 
for every man, woman, and child from every walk of life. So we're going to highlight three characters tonight in Acts 16, showing that Jesus has come for the wealthy, he has come for the weak, and he has come for the working. So here we go. First of all, uh, Jesus and his saving gospel have come for the wealthy. Just because this was a really long section, I asked Elena to skip over verses 11 through 16, but it is really important to set the scene for the rest of the chapter. So if you have your Bible open already, uh, let me just read these first five verses, starting in, in chapter 16, verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in, of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, two quick things to point out before we really get into the meat of this. The first is that of the pronoun we. We, we saw this, first, this pronoun make its first appearance uh, last week in verse 10, that we kind of skipped over that observation, but it sure looks like Luke, the, the writer of Acts, has briefly joined Paul and his crew at Troas over here in Turkey, right before they took the boat over to Macedonia. By the end of this chapter, the pronoun will then change back from we back to they. It moves back to we, back in chapter, or all the way forward in chapter 20, when Luke and a whole bunch of other dudes join back up again at Troas. This Jesus movement and its various uh, missionary workers from all over the known world is picking up steam, and it is moving in a bunch of different directions. But the second thing to observe here is that Luke tells us that they finally arrive at the city of Philippi in Macedonia. Most of Macedonia is modern-day Greece. Some of it is uh, in modern-day Bulgaria, but Philippi, named after Philip, Alexander the Great's uh, Macedonian father, was a major Roman outpost. Way over there in the east, in far eastern Greece, but this was still a major Roman outpost. This was a place where lots of retired military uh, veterans would go to live out the rest of their days. And there, it was a colony. It was not just under Roman rule, but it was a colony of Rome. The folks there would have been Roman citizens, which will certainly come into play later on. Okay, so unlike his strategy in other cities— of this inside-out start with the synagogues. Here, it appears there is no synagogue in Philippi. To start a synagogue, 10 men would have been required. 10 Jewish men would have been required in any city to start a synagogue. But Paul still uses his inside-out strategy to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Paul goes down to the river where he is hoping that there is a place of Sabbath prayer happening. And there is. There are some women meeting by the riverside for Sabbath prayers. They probably aren't Jewish. Lydia, or Luke calls Lydia a worshiper of God. She is likely very much like Cornelius in Acts 10. 
who was a Roman, someone who had come to worship the God of Israel, but just like other Jews, now needs to hear about and respond to the gospel of Jesus, to respond to Israel's Messiah and his saving work on the cross. Cornelius and Lydia had no, like, breaking news alerts on their phones on Easter morning to tell them that Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, had been crucified and had been raised to new life. There was no news feeds or social media updates. They likely didn't even know that there was someone named Jesus of Nazareth, much less that he was the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and dreams. But as one commentator says, because of her already uh, worship and love for God, the window was already open for Paul to then tap on and push through with the clear preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul must have been just so excited, elated. This is exactly what the vision of the Macedonian man had said that we saw last week. A man who appeared in his dream and said, come over and help us. Paul must have been thinking, this is such a great start. He must have been very optimistic for what what God was doing here with Lydia, and then what he surely would continue to do here in Philippi. But before we keep going there, who is this lady named Lydia? Luke tells us that she's from Thyatira, which is a city back across the sea in Turkey, and she is a seller of purple goods. Purple is the color of royalty, mostly because only royalty or those who were very, very wealthy could afford to buy something that was purple. This was because purple dyes came from only a shellfish that was mostly found and harvested just along the Mediterranean coast. This shellfish was not easy to come by, and so it was very rare. And so, being a seller of purple cloth, this would certainly suggest that Lydia herself was actually quite wealthy as well. She has an entire house, an entire household to bring Paul and the boys back to, She's possibly widowed. Don't hear anything about her husband, but just her house. But we know that she's industrious. She's likely well thought of and likely influential in town. And so while she very likely had many fewer physical needs than many, maybe most people in Philippi, she realized what she needed most was not only knowledge about God, not only worship of God, not only knowledge about Jesus, but to know Jesus and the love of his cross and the forgiveness of her sins. In Paul's clear preaching of the gospel that pushes through the window of her heart, she is now free from a guilty conscience, perhaps even free from a guilty conscience of not even measuring up to the own standards that she has set for herself in her life. She is set free. She is released. She is reborn with a new heart, fully alive to God, so that she might finally love him as she has been created to, that she might finally love others selflessly as Christ has loved her, the same Jesus who now lives in and through her with the power of his resurrection. Though wealthy, she actually has nothing to offer but the empty hands of faith. And she responds. She is baptized along with those in her household that were also at the river. Not just her children, like many of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters might infer from a text like this, that when someone becomes a Christian, that means that we ought to baptize the entire house, that we might baptize their children as well, but that the normative pattern in Acts 
is that individual people hear the gospel, that individual people repent of sin because of personal conviction, and then respond in faith to the waters of baptism. God is saving a people, but he is saving a people unto himself made by individual faith. And since household here would have also very likely included not just her children, if she indeed had any, but her household, her servants. We should not then assume that all modern business owners who become Christians should then get baptized and then baptize their children and all of their employees. But what a model of faith Lydia would have been for her children if she had any, or for her servants, her entire household. Like, oh man, if, if Lydia, wealthy, influential Lydia, is coming to Jesus with nothing but her empty hands of faith, should I too? Maybe I should. Yes, I should. Not because they are being manipulated or they are riding on the coattails of her faith, but now they, alongside their wealthy matron, come alongside equally and in unity with her in faith. All level in their shared faith in Jesus. The gospel is for all people. And the gospel is even for the wealthy. It can be difficult for the wealthy to recognize their need for the gospel when they are very rarely in need of anything else. But perhaps you, you who here perhaps have much money, might sit here tonight and then really consider if the money that you have is actually delivering the kind of security and contentment that you hoped it would. Despite your intellectual prowess, despite your entrepreneurial acumen, perhaps maybe even just of how you've benefited from your own family, your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents' success and wealth, actually none of us have anything to offer of spiritual worth to the Lord on our own and through our selfishness, through our self-worship. And as Jesus regularly points out, it is often the poor who in humility recognize their need and come to Christ first. And so the gospel is for all. The gospel is for the wealthy. But speaking of the poor, for the weak, the saving gospel of Jesus also comes for them as well. Now, secondly, the gospel comes for the weak. Beginning in verse 16, Paul and the boys are, are walking through Philippi, and a slave girl begins to follow behind. This girl is possessed by what our English Bibles translate, or at least the English Standard Version that we are reading from, the ESV, translate as a spirit of divination in verse 16. But the Greek actually says what Luke writes is a spirit of python which is really weird. Might, you might think like a spirit of the serpent or something from Genesis 3, but that's actually, there's much more than that. Here in Philippi, Apollo, the, the Roman god of war, was the big-time deity, which makes sense if this was a city that was filled and populated with a bunch of former Roman military veterans. And Apollo is closely associated with the killing of a big dragon python in Greek mythology, that then gave him access to a priestess named Pythia, Pythia Python, uh, who then became known as the Oracle of Delphi. Stay with me here for just a second. This oracle was well known in the Greek world of being able to speak on behalf of Apollo. You would come to this oracle, you would come to Pythia, if you wanted to know what 
the gods would have for your life, namely Apollo. And so here's the point. This slave girl is kind of like an underling, a, maybe a counterfeit, but it seems to be quite actually spiritually real, of the actual oracle of Delphi. She is possessed by some real supernatural power, a, a spirit of Python that gives her insight beyond just the realm of what is clearly visible to us, to them. Now, all of this sounds wacky. All of this sounds unlikely to our modern and scientific and rational ears. Probably most of us want to pull out a, a handbook or immediately try to diagnose her with some psychological disorder or something. But this kind of unseen realm is absolutely the worldview of the Bible. And while this worldview should not cause us fear or anxiety or even cynicism or suspicion, certainly should not cause fear or anxiety to those, for those of us who belong to a stronger Christ, yet the unseen powers are nevertheless real influencers in the world, as we'll continue to see. It's important to note that the people, or there are people who are using this slave girl, to get rich. They do not care one ounce about her as a human being, only about what she can deliver by way of money for them. She is being used and exploited by her handlers. But this is a weird scene, isn't it? Maybe you were like, wait, what just happened? As you heard Elena read, or as you were reading this week, she's following behind them saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then Paul gets annoyed by that. So what's going on? Well, perhaps two options. This demonic spirit could be reacting to them, these missionaries, these apostles, in the same way that many spirits rightly knew and acknowledged Jesus. It's also possible if not likely, that when she says the Most High God, she is perhaps not referring to the monotheistic God of Israel, the same God of Abraham and of Moses and of David. She just as likely could be, like the people of Lystra in Acts 14, talking about Zeus, the Most High God. And the salvation that she's talking about wouldn't have necessarily meant she's saying, everybody listen to these guys, they are proclaiming salvation, but that is the way of forgiveness of sins by union with Christ, the Messiah. But she could be saying, they are proclaiming to you the way of rescue or deliverance from Zeus or by Zeus, which could have been referring to any number of kinds of deliverances. Either way, whether Paul finally figures out after a couple of days that this girl is clearly not understanding what she's talking about, she's perhaps talking about Zeus, talking about the wrong God and the wrong kind of salvation, or she is speaking clearly, but he knows that if he ends up doing something about him or about it, it's just going to bring a bunch of undue attention. It's going to disrupt a bunch of things, and it's going to perhaps prevent his continuing to preach the gospel. Either way, finally, he's had enough. Greatly annoyed, Luke says, he finally turns around and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And Luke tells us, and it came out that very hour. But here's the problem. Pretend instead of a fortune-telling slave girl, her handlers actually owned a really lucrative fishing boat. Paul just sank the boat. 
He's freed this girl from oppressive bondage, but he has turned off the faucet to a hose that was just spraying money. And while the spirit indwelling the girl cowered and obeyed the word of Christ through Paul, the powers behind the power indwelling the girl are not going down without a fight. The societal structures of unfettered greed and of money and of profit, the customs and tradition of abuse and exploitation often respond like a rabid dog against the leveling and releasing power of Christ who has not come to love just the wealthy, but even the weak, who has come not to heal the well and the healthy, but the sick. The power and the leveling word of freedom that calls to all to respond in humility, in repentance, and in faith, no matter your societal position. And so Luke tells us that while they would later accuse them in verses 20 and 21 of being Jews who disturb the city and advocate customs that are not lawful to accept or practice, Luke before that in verse 19 tells us that what these men were really upset about was that the money had dried up. This passage is a really, really good balance against last week. When we thought about using our words, our actions, even our temperament to gain an audience for the gospel, to not be unnecessarily divisive that might then shut down opportunities for the gospel, But the pluralistic world of today is actually very, very similar to the pluralistic Greco-Roman world of the first century. Exclusive worship of one God was inappropriate and wrong then, and it is inappropriate and wrong now. Because Jesus rightly speaks against the same idols of money and sex and power who rule in every age, then and now. It's becoming increasingly common for Orthodox Bible-believing Christians to be seen as dangerous in society today because they will not bow down and worship the gods of the day. And so one pastor in London recently wrote, if the world around you is post-Christian and nothing you think, say, or do offends them, then you may be post-Christian too. Again, balancing last week, not to unnecessarily offend and then to unnecessarily close down opportunities and conversations, but how much of our thinking, of our speech, of our worldview, the way in which we see and operate in the world is actually shaped more by the world than by Jesus and by his word to us. A light into our path, a very bread on which we feed. They have offended and upset the power structures of Philippi. And while we're not exactly sure what happens to this slave girl, if she is anything like the men, the women, and the children that Jesus similarly released from demonic oppression, she likely, in overwhelming joy, came not only to follow Jesus in repentance and in gratitude, but then to energetically tell others about the freedom that she now experiences through him. 
The saving gospel of Jesus has come to free the wealthy, and it has come to free the weak. It comes to all that they might respond in the same way, in faith, in humility, and in repentance. But then as Paul and Silas are stripped, publicly beaten with rods, and then thrown into prison, we'll now lastly see that the saving gospel of Jesus has not only come for the wealthy and the weak, but also the working. To finish out the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 23, in verse 25, we find that Paul and Silas, in prison, are singing hymns to God and praying at midnight. I think that I've tended to like think about this story as like this like Hillsong concert, like something awesome and powerful at midnight. At least happy. I mean, I mean, you know, like you know that '80s and '90s Christmas song of "Children, go where I send thee. How shall I send thee? What's the two by two? I'm gonna send thee two by two, two for Paul and Silas. Like this is where this comes from." And then, born, born, born in Bethlehem. It's really happy. This is a happy, like, stomp clap session in prison. But we know they can't stomp because their feet are in stocks. Romans would do this to make sure that you could not move around while you were in prison. You could not sleep comfortably. Your feet and legs would go to sleep and then maybe even begin to atrophy. They have been beaten with rods. They undoubtedly have huge cuts, huge bruises, maybe broken bones, no serious painkillers that you have received by prescription when you were in the hospital with broken bones or after surgery. They did not even have one ibuprofen or an ice pack. This is likely a worse night than most of us in this room have ever experienced. And it is here that they are praying and singing hymns to God at midnight. With atrophying legs, with broken bones and bruises and cuts. I mean, I would be tempted to think, if I were Paul, laying on my back with my feet in stocks, I must have misinterpreted the dream. I thought the Macedonian man was from Macedonia. He's not from here because this is wrong. This is all wrong. I must have had a bad burrito that day before I fell asleep, because this dream is not of the Lord. Maybe we misinterpreted where we were supposed to go. Maybe the optimism of that first morning down by the river with Lydia was completely, uh, it was not supposed to be. All of this is wrong, but not for Paul and Silas. They trusted God. Not only would they have, like the apostles in Acts 5, been rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus, but like then Paul would later write in his letter of Philippians, his letter to this church, back to this city, when he was later imprisoned again and he would write the letter to the Philippians, that he was in that letter, imprisoned again, so happy in Philippians 1 to be imprisoned. Why? Because Well, now he's getting to preach the gospel to the prison guards, people that he would have never thought to have gone to, that he ordinarily would not have had access to. Praise the Lord that he's in prison now because so many of these Roman guards are hearing and responding to the gospel. 
Or that in Philippians 4, that whether he is in prison or he is out and about walking around town, whether he has a lot or a little in Philippians 4, he has found the secret to contentment in life. And the secret is that he can do all things. That is, he can live in whatever scenario or in whatever circumstance. He can do and live in all things with contentment through Christ who strengthens him. That's the secret to contentment, that he can live in whatever scenario God has for him because he lives with Christ in him. And it is this trust in a good and wise and loving and providential God that allows Paul and Silas with black eyes and broken ribs to pray and to sing hymns to the Lord. Maybe not, maybe not power anthems of victory. Maybe the first century equivalent of, it is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well. Maybe the first century equivalent of, Christ is mine forevermore. Mine are days, days of sorrow, and yet Christ is mine. These men are exceptional models to us that our worst days are not just understandable days off from prayer. Not understandable days off from fighting for joyful contentment, but the days that we need to press into deep faith and contentment the most. Pressing for joy with other Christians, actively reminding ourselves of what is true, rather than succumbing to the temptation to passively believe what is not true. That God is not good, that God is not wise, that God is not loving, that he is not for my good, but is asking me to live a life that is just too hard. No, these are the days that require faith, that require prayer. These are the formative days. As we've said before, think back on every time in your life that was actually formative or transformative. How many of those times were times of carefree ease and fun? Likely none of them. Some of us have longer periods, perhaps lifelong periods of suffering and of weakness and of difficulty. Some of us have days, but God is always good and wise and present. But the point of this story in this chapter is not that the gospel finds wonderfully transformative ends in people, that it finds Paul, fills him with joy, and stops there, but that the gospel continues to transform others through people. There is an earthquake, and the prison doors are open. God has already freed them, but in a sense, they are already free. They've been free since the moment they met Christ. And so they don't make a break for it. Maybe because they know if they escape, it will mean the death of the guards outside, like what happened in Acts 12. Perhaps they've been having conversations with the jailer and don't want his death. Maybe more likely, as we'll see, they actually want to make a statement that they have been unfairly treated. The gospel should be able to continue in open and in the light, not sneaking out of there and then just escaping on to the next town. So Paul yells out to the guards not to harm or to kill themselves. A a better fate, a quick suicide, would have been a better fate than a much more gruesome execution 
the next day for losing their prisoners. And so he yells to the jailer that they are still here. They're still in the prison cell. The jailer can't believe it. Why would they have not run? So he comes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now this scene, his question and Paul's response, rightly gets used often as a very clear moment of evangelism, a very clear answer to the very serious problem. Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But the jailer may just be running in to ask, guys, you got to tell me. You got to tell me how I can get out of this mess. There are prison cells everywhere. What must I do to be saved? He might be. He might be running in because of an earthquake and he is now trembling in fear of God. He might be running in and saying, guys, how can I be made right before a holy and eternal God? Either way, though, the answer from Paul is still the same. Paul's answer has double meaning, both for the present and for eternity. He says, Jesus will save you. He will rescue and deliver you. Maybe or maybe not in this life. Jesus is not your fairy godmother to get you out of every bind. But in every bind, he is good. And he is actually what you need most, not a strategy to escape execution. You need Christ. Trust him now, in this moment, in this jail jail cell, as you wonder what to do now, and trust him for eternity. Now, I think we can tend toward thinking of this jailer as a really powerful Roman soldier, but this guy is probably a bottom-of-the-totem-pole kind of guy. That's why I've titled this section that the gospel is for the working. This guy is a blue-collar worker. He is working the red-eye overnight shift in prison with some Jewish prisoners. He doesn't have the luxury of earthquake insurance or of unemployment, or he doesn't have huge investment funds to retire away to another part of the world. He went into work on a night like every other night, and then that night quickly turned into unexpected disaster, which could have meant the end of his income and could have meant the end of his life. But Paul does not say, hey, let's, let's, go, let's go speak to your supervisors about these poor working conditions. Let's go record a Facebook Live video about how awful this honor-shame culture is that can quickly require the suicidal death of bottom-of-the-totem-pole workers. Those things are important, and as we have seen, the gospel of Jesus actually has things to say about societal ills. But as one author puts it, These kinds of justice or societal issues are not the gospel or are not even in the gospel, but they flow from the gospel. That's important for us to distinguish. Paul gives this vulnerable blue-collar man an announcement of good news and an opportunity for personal response to the kingdom of Christ. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In the short term and in the long term, Jesus is what the jailer needed most. He might die tonight, but he will have Jesus. He will have forgiveness of sins 
justification and adoption into the family of God in the exact same way that wealthy Lydia and the weak and exploited slave girl needed the cleansing, forgiving, liberating, and transforming power of Jesus. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, no matter the size of your bank account, no matter the ease or the difficulty of your life, what we all need most is to come to Christ. In his beauty and his glory and his holiness, to recognize our sin for what it is, to come to him not only in repentance but for cleansing, to be united to him in the power of his death and his resurrection. All we like sheep, Isaiah, Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of, of, of us to his own way. No matter who we are, our background, our culture, every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so the jailer takes them back to his house Paul preaches to everyone there. And after, then the jailer washes and cares for Paul and Silas's wounds. He's like a good Samaritan character here. The upside down leveling nature of the gospel now causing Christians to care for the weak and the exploited and the vulnerable. Things have been turned upside down by his belief and faith in Christ. So after all of this, then all who heard in the house then believed and responded in baptism. And you want to know the best part of all this? The best part, the book of Philippians, the, the, the first book that we ever preached through as a church over four years ago, one of my absolute favorite books in the Bible, the very first book that we preached just about unity and the shared joy of the church. The amazing, amazing part of this, assuming that the slave girl actually responded in faith to Jesus, the very first Christians at Philippi, likely church members who received the letter that Paul would write to them of Philippians, the very first members of this church were a wealthy lady, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman soldier. Amazing! The Church of Jesus Christ is the original multicultural trans-economic social project. As we mentioned a month or so ago, uh, we're planning on a three-week sermon series, a short sermon series starting the last week of April to think more deeply about some of these things, to think more deeply about humanity and the image of God, to think more deeply about justice, to think more deeply about the life and the role of the church in these areas. What does the Bible have to say? What does God have to say? What does God want for us as individuals and as a church these will be difficult but needed conversations for us. But what a model for us, this church, this Philippian church is. What wisdom from God, what wisdom by the Spirit to help Luke highlight for us here, that the gospel comes for all kinds of people, for every man, woman, and child, for every size of bank account, for every vocation, for every human being, the gospel comes and requires response. And then from that comes unity, comes joy, comes contentment, comes love, comes sacrifice. 
Now, I'm not going to spend much more time here on these last, last five verses of chapter 16. There's actually some really, really great stuff that Paul is doing and saying against these civic leaders, including like pulling out the ace from his sleeve that he is actually a Roman citizen. That gets him going. He's like, I am not left-handed. And there was like, what? Shoot, what have we done? But this kind of like in the open, like let me talk to your manager kind of MO that Paul often pulls is going to keep coming and going throughout the rest of the book. So we'll have much to think through and talk about there because he is not in trying to talk to their manager, not trying to talk to the magistrates of the city. He's not trying to vindicate himself or humiliate or punish his enemies, but he is doing these things that he might have a more clear and open opportunity to preach the gospel to more and more and more people. The acts of Jesus by his spirit and through his church. Things are really picking up, really gaining momentum, really getting good here in Acts. And I think, I'm encouraged, things are picking up momentum and really getting good. Not that the last several years amongst us haven't been good. What life and joy, but I am so excited. I think all of us are feeling the light at the end of the tunnel, coming back to some sense of normalcy. We are thinking more about what we want most for us to be true as a church, thinking about coming out of life, of leaving our homes more often, of being in each other's homes more often, and being with our community more and more regularly. These are getting good. Let's pray that God would continue to work in and through us. Our Father, we are thankful that you have not come to uh, just shoot the gospel into people that they might uh, respond and be changed, but that you have come to inject the gospel in and through us, that you have used us as your means to proclaim a gospel of life to a world that is dying that you had come to us and save us and liberate us and release us from the bondage of sin, that we might go, now those who are free in Christ, to, sing, to preach and to sing the same gospel of liberty from bondage to others. And we pray that you would give us unity, love for one another, that our love for each other might be a great testimony to an unbelieving world around us. Might we love the world around us with kindness, with mercy, with justice, with compassion, with welcoming hospitality. And we pray that you would do these things in and through us for our King Jesus' sake. And for our own joy, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.